0: Hello, and welcome to today's Institute for Healthcare Improvement's Author in the Room conference call. My name is Kim, and I'll be your conference operator for today's conference. Right now, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later we will conduct a question-and-answer session. Instructions on how to participate will follow at that time. As a reminder, this call is being recorded. If you should need operator assistance at any time, please press star, then zero on your telephone keypad. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's call, Madge Kaplan, senior communications strategist and former editor and health correspondent for National Public Radio. Madge, you may go ahead.
1: Thank you very much. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Author in the Room, a project of JAMA and IHI, that is, the Journal of the American Medical Association and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, all made possible by a generous grant from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. My name indeed is Madge Kaplan. I'm Senior Communications Strategist at IHI and moderator of these monthly discussions. They're designed to bridge the gap between knowledge, what is published in an article, and act being able to translate knowledge into steps that can improve clinical practice and patient care. Today, our featured author is Dr. Henry M. Blumberg. He's the first author of the article, Update on the Treatment of Tuberculosis and Latent Tuberculosis Infection. Dr. Blumberg is Professor of Medicine and Program Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at the Emory University School of Medicine. He also serves as Hospital Epidemiologist and Chair of the Infection Control Committee at Grady Memorial Hospital in Atlanta, Georgia. Dr. Blumberg research interests include healthcare and molecular epidemiology, tuberculosis, and clinical research training. Welcome, Dr. Blumberg.
2: Hello. Good to be here. Terrific. Also
1: with us today to help focus our discussion on the application of Dr. Blumberg's findings with an eye toward clinical improvement is Dr. Chuck Kylo. Dr. Kylo is CEO of Greenfield Health in Portland, Oregon. He's a fellow with the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and a practicing internist. Welcome, Dr. Kylo.
3: Great to be here, Madge.
1: The purpose of today's and future Author in the Room calls is for you to hear directly from an author about research findings that can improve patient care and clinical practice. Because we know that making the leap from what's on the page to changes in how care is delivered can be daunting, each Author in the Room call is guided by a clinical improvement expert. He or she suggests how to first plan, then try out some new ways of doing things on a small scale, observe the results, refine the methods and eventually come to a place where the change or changes, as the case may be, have the desired impact and can be fully implemented. And that is really the role that Dr. Kylo will be playing today. our hour together will go, Dr. Blumberg will spend 15 minutes summarizing his research. Dr. Kylo will then take about 10 minutes to describe improvement methods and suggest practical ways to apply Dr. Blumberg's TB update to medical practice. At the bottom of the hour, about a half hour from now, we'll turn to questions from callers and some discussions. So uh, be prepared for that. DJI and JAMA plan to study the degree to which author in the room participants um, incorporate clinical improvements suggested by our experts and the impact these changes have on clinical practice. We ask that all participants complete two short surveys immediately after the call and three months from now. These surveys are emailed to you. We thank you so much for taking the time to complete the surveys so that we may carefully monitor and measure the value of these discussions. almost 200 organizations registered to be with us today. Members of the media may be present on today's call on a background basis only, and one other note, this call is being recorded and will be made available on the IHI and JAMA websites. Welcome all, and let's get started. Let me again introduce Dr. Henry Blumberg, who will provide an overview of his newly published article. Dr. Blumberg, go ahead, please.
2: Okay, thanks very much for inviting me, and I wanted to take a moment to recognize JAMA for highlighting the problem of tuberculosis through this special theme issue. Tuberculosis, or TB, has emerged as an enormous uh, global public health epidemic, and uh, it's estimated by the World Health Organization that approximately 9 million uh, new persons will develop active TB this year, and more than 2 million people will die due to TB this year. The global epidemic of TB has really affected the United States, where the majority of the cases now occur among uh, foreign-born persons in the U.S. Uh, In 2004, about 54% of all U.S. TB cases occurred among foreign-born persons. The article um, that we'll be discussing provides updates on the treatment of tuberculosis, which is also called active TB, or TB, or TB disease as well as the treatment of latent TB infection, also called LTBI. And previously, uh, it had been called preventive therapy or chemoprophylaxis. However, the preferred term now is is latent TB infection. Those with latent TB infection are infected with mycobacterium tuberculosis and are at risk for progression to active TB. This risk varies widely based on host factors and uh, potentially virulence factors of the infecting organism. I'd like to start uh, with a brief discussion of the treatment of TB or active TB. And the treatment of TB, first of all, is very much different than uh, other diseases that we may treat, given its public health importance, and because TB can be transmitted person to person through an airborne route. The responsibility for prescribing an appropriate drug regimen and ensuring that treatment is completed is assigned to the public health program or the clinician, the group that's treating the the patient and not to the patient themselves. So it's very different than other types of diseases we treat. The initial regimen for the treatment of TB consists of a four-drug regimen. This includes isoniazid or INH, rifampin, pyrazinamide, and ethambutol. A four-drug regimen is provided initially because of concerns about the possibility of drug resistance. Directly observed therapy is recommended for all patients uh, being treated for active TB. And directly observed therapy consists of providing the medications directly to the patient and watching him or her swallow the anti TB drugs. Uh, the reason using directly observed therapy is important is because uh, it's associated with higher cure rates, it prevents the emergence of drug resistant disease, and it thus enhances TB control. The infrastructure to provide directly observed therapy is generally only available through public health agencies, and thus, private public health collaborations are very important in the treatment of TB. A high index of suspicion is essential in order to make the diagnosis, and recently there have been uh, a number of reports about delays in diagnosis. So for clinicians, it's really important to have a high index of suspicion. Uh, For many clinicians, it may be appropriate to refer patients with active TB to the local public health department for treatment or to someone with experience in the treatment of TB. Most clinicians in the United States probably infrequently see or care for patients with active TB. Empiric therapy with an appropriate four-drug regimen needs to be initiated when there's a high clinical suspicion for active TB prior to culture confirmation because the cultures take several weeks to come back, and in some cases before the AFB smear microscopy results are known. Several different regimens are available for uh, treatment as discussed in the article. A common theme uh, among all these different regimens is initiating therapy with four drugs because of concerns about resistant TB and to ensure that the patient is always on at least two drugs to which the organism is susceptible. The goals of therapy include ensuring a cure without a relapse, preventing death and stopping transmission of mycobacterium tuberculosis, and preventing the emergence of drug resistance. There are two components of therapy for the treatment of active TB. The first is called the intensive or initiation phase, and again, that includes uh, initiating therapy with a four-drug regimen for two months. These four drugs, again, are isoniazid, rifampin, pyrazinamide, and ethambutol. And then after two months is the continuation phase, which in drug-susceptible tuberculosis would include the use of isoniazid and rifampin for an additional four to seven months to complete a total of six to nine months of therapy for active TB thus a total of six to nine months of therapy, this is the so-called short course therapy, although it's really not that short, is needed for the treatment of drug-susceptible TB with a rifampin-based regimen. And again, for the six months of therapy includes four drugs for two months, followed by two drugs, isoniazid and rifampin, for an additional four months. Risk factors for relapse of TB include having a chest x-ray showing cavitary disease at the time of diagnosis, plus being culture positive after two months of therapy. So it's really important to get a uh, follow-up sputum uh, sample, especially after two months of therapy. Patients who have both of these risk factors, cavitary TB and are culture positive after two months of therapy, have a markedly increased chance of relapsing, around 25% after six months of therapy. And therefore, for those patients with both risk factors, they should have their therapy extended an additional three months to complete nine months of uh, treatment for active TB. Next, I'd like to move on briefly to summarize issues regarding the treatment of latent TB infection or LTBI. And as cases of TB have decreased in the United States, there has been a lot of renewed interest and focus on the treatment of latent TB infection as an important TB control strategy. Testing for latent TB infection should be really targeted at high-risk individuals. Testing of low-risk persons is strongly discouraged. There's two broad categories of candidates for latent TB infection testing, and and these include persons who are likely to have been recently infected, for example, contacts to an infectious TB case. And the second group are persons who are at increased risk of progression to active TB following infection with mycobacterium tuberculosis because of uh, underlying clinical conditions, and these would include things like HIV infection, which is the greatest risk factor for progression following infection to active disease and also other selective medical conditions. Uh, another group are recent immigrants to the United States from high TB uh, burden countries uh, because they're also uh, at, risk, uh, at increased risk of developing active TB if they have latent TB infection. Prior to beginning uh, treatment for latent TB infection, it's, it's very essential and quite important that active TB be excluded by a chest x-ray and symptom review in all persons suspected of having latent TB infection. What you absolutely do not want to do is treat someone for latent TB infection with a single drug when in reality they have uh, active TB, because treatment of active TB with a single drug will lead to the development of drug resistance. A tuberculin skin test is the most commonly used test for the diagnosis of latent TB infection, and uh, one of the few tests that's been around for more than 100 years, and until very recently was the only available diagnostic test for latent TB infection. Criteria for a positive tuberculin skin test are stratified by risk. A higher sensitivity is desired for those persons at greater risk, and so there's three different cut points for what constitutes a positive tuberculin skin test, 5 millimeters, 10 millimeters, and 15 millimeters of induration. This is discussed in detail uh, in the article and outlined in box two in the article. The 5-millimeter cutoff is used for those at very high risk for progression from infection to active TB, and this would include persons who are HIV-infected, organ transplant recipients, and patients receiving immunosuppressive drugs such as TNF-alpha inhibitors, including infliximab and etanercept, or persons on other immunosuppressive drugs, which is defined as the equivalent of 15 milligrams or more per day of prednisone for at least one month. Others who are also at markedly increased risk uh, for progression include uh, contacts of infectious TB cases and those with fibrotic changes on chest X-ray consistent with prior TB. And so for all these really high-risk groups, 5 millimeters uh, of induration is is considered a positive test. The 10 millimeter cutoff is considered positive in recent immigrants to the United States from high-prevalence countries, as well as persons with certain... Uh, medical conditions that put them at increased risk, including certain malignancies, diabetes, chronic renal failure, etc., and uh, healthcare workers or others who are undergoing serial uh, uh, testing. The 15 millimeter cutoff is used for those uh, with no risk factors um, who probably should not have been tested in the first place based on the targeted testing strategy, but sometimes the people are tested. As pointed out uh, by the Institute of Medicine, New diagnostic tests are are needed for latent TB infection. Uh, There's a number of limitations of the tuberculin skin tests, uh, and this includes reader variability, false positive uh, tests due to cross-reactivity with environmental mycobacteria and previous BCG vaccination, and false negative tests due to energy in immunosuppressed uh, patients. Peripheral blood T-cell-based interferon gamma assays have recent been developed in the last few years, and a second-generation test called QuantiFERON Gold is now FDA-approved uh, for the treat for the rather for uh, as a diagnostic test for latent TB infection. Uh, so we now uh, do have uh, we're beginning to have alternatives to the tuberculin skin test. CDC is currently developing guidelines for the use of the QuantiFERON Gold test in selected patient populations, and those should be uh, published in the coming months. Recommendations for the treatment of TB and latent TB infection are evidence-based. The effectiveness of isoniazid for the treatment of latent TB infection has been reported uh, to range anywhere from 25 to 92 percent. However, when the analysis was restricted to persons who were compliant with the medication, the protective efficacy was uh, around 90 percent. The preferred duration of treatment with isoniazid for latent TB infection in all patient populations is nine months because clinical trial data suggests that the maximal benefit is achieved by this nine-month period. Six months of isoniazid is an alternative therapy for uh, the treatment of latent TB infection in adults, but not in HIV-positive persons or children where nine months of INH should be used. Four months of rifampin is another alternative therapy and is recommended when treating persons thought to be infected with isoniazid or INH-resistant strains of mycobacterium tuberculosis. Uh, Short-course therapy for latent TB infection with a two-month regimen of rifampin plus pyrazinamide is not recommended for the treatment of latent TB infection because after this uh, regimen was introduced, there were multiple reports of severe hepatotoxicity and death associated with this regimen. So, again, uh, it's not recommended to use a two, the two-month regimen of rifampin plus pyrazinamide for the treatment of latent TB infection. These two drugs do remain an important component of a multi-drug regimen for the treatment of active TB, but are not recommended for the treatment of uh, latent TB infection. Hepatotoxicity is the major side effect associated with isoniazid use, which again is the preferred drug for the treatment of latent TB infection. However, the risk of symptomatic hepatitis with isoniazid is much less than previously thought, and it's estimated in recent studies to be in the range of one to three per thousand persons treated. Uh, Guidelines published by the American Thoracic Society and CDC recommend baseline and follow-up liver function tests only in selected high-risk groups who are undergoing treatment for latent TB infection. Baseline and monthly laboratory testing of liver enzymes is recommended for HIV-infected persons, pregnant women, and those women who, who are within three months of postpartum, persons with chronic liver disease, and persons who consume alcohol on a regular basis. Baseline and monthly monitoring of liver enzymes should also be performed in patients who uh, who have comorbid illnesses and are taking other medications that can be hepatotoxic, for instance, statin drugs. Uh, Isonizid or rifampin should be discontinued for the treatment of latent TB infection in a symptomatic patient if the serum transaminase level is more than three times the upper limit of normal in someone who develops symptoms or in an asymptomatic patient whose transaminase level is more than five times the upper limit of normal. Uh, patients who are getting treated for latent TB infections should be seen monthly. A symptom review should be carried out uh, for signs and symptoms of hepatitis, and no more than one month's therapy should be dispensed at a time. Isoniazid can also cause a peripheral neuropathy, and this can be prevented in most cases by providing patients with pyridoxine or vitamin B6. A major limitation of our current uh, therapies for latent TB infection is, is poor completion. In one study carried out by CDC, less than half of high-risk people, and these were close contacts of infectious TB cases, initiated and completed at least six months of INH. And unfortunately, little progress has been made in the last 40 years in developing new, shorter, and safer treatment regimens for latent TB infection. And new drugs and regimens are needed uh, to shorten the course of therapy for latent TB infection. New drugs are also needed for the treatment of active TB, and this includes agents for the treatment of multidrug-resistant TB, uh, which is very challenging to treat, and new drugs are needed. Um, uh, I should mention MDR-TB, or multidrug-resistant TB, is defined as resistance to at least isoniazid and rifampin. And new drugs for active TB are also needed uh, for the treatment of those with susceptible uh, TB so that we can shorten treatment courses to less than six months. There has been a lot of excitement about a recent report of a novel diarrheal quinoline drug that considerably reduces the time necessary to treat TB in mice. However, further studies are going to be needed to determine if this potential will be met in the treatment of humans with uh, TB. So in summary, tuberculosis is a uh, public health problem. the responsibility for prescribing an appropriate regimen and ensuring that the treatment is completed is assigned to the public health program or the treating physician and not the patient. Directly observed therapy is recommended for all patients being treated for active TB, and this will necessitate the need for greater collaboration between the treating physician and the public health department. Initial therapy for newly diagnosed patients with TB consists of a four-drug regimen, including isoniazid, rifampin, pyrazinamide, and ethambutol. Testing for latent TB infection should be targeted at those who are at increased risk of progression to active TB. Despite its limitations, the tuberculin skin test remains the most commonly used test for the diagnosis of latent TB infection. However, newer diagnostic tests for latent TB infection are on the horizon. Active tuberculosis should be excluded before beginning treatment for latent TB infection. And finally, nine months of isoniazid is the preferred therapy for the treatment of latent TB infection.
1: Okay, thank you so much, Dr. Blumberg, Uh, thorough and a lot uh, packed in there that's uh, incredibly useful. We now want to turn to what the research and Dr. Blumberg's recommendations suggest about changes in clinical practice that clinicians and those in a position to propose some new practice ideas might consider. Dr. Kylo, we turn to you. What sort of improvement in care uh, might follow from Dr. Blumberg's review of some ideal methods for diagnosing and treating uh, both active and latent TB?
3: Thanks, Madge. And greetings, everyone. Thank you, Dr. Blumberg. Uh, My role, uh, as Madge said, is to take the lessons from this article and decide how to make improvements in our practices, as Madge again has said. And this particular article, uh, which doesn't per se have a research conclusion, but which is an update on the treatment of uh, tuberculosis and latent tuberculosis, is obviously just packed with information. And the challenge we have is how to systematize this information so that we can assure highly reliable care Uh, uh, is delivered to patients with tuberculosis or latent tuberculosis. And as we get into this, I just want to provide a very quick overview of the change process in general. The main guide that we have is something called the model for improvement. It's simply a powerful tool for driving improvement in organizations. And healthcare professionals will recognize this uh, model for improvement because it really is Uh, synonymous with the scientific method applied to management and improving processes. And all organizational improvement really, uh, to be effective, has to have two parts. The first part is about stating our hypotheses, and the second part is about testing our hypotheses. And I want to take uh, a quick second here to talk about the first part, stating our hypotheses, which in and of itself has three components, which are particularly, I think, pertinent to, to this study. The first thing that we need to do to get to the improvement that we seek is to make sure that we have a set of clearly stated and shared aims. And I think it's particularly important in this case because as Dr. Blumberg has so nicely laid out, the management of tuberculosis is uh, by necessity a collaboration between departments of public health and clinicians. Uh, Each has their role, and as a matter of fact, the leadership probably needs to be most appropriately applied by the Department of Public Health because they work with multiple clinicians in their area. And each of those clinicians ought to be interacting with uh, with the central Department of Public Health. Uh, so clearly stated aims is really critical. Um, the second part of the hypothesis is measures that tell us if our t- the changes we're testing are leading to improvements. As an example, in this case, some of the tests Some of the measures might be the number of patients who are lost to follow-up in the process of treating active tuberculosis. And then the third piece is identifying testable changes that are likely to lead to improvement, again in this case improved uh, treatment of patients with tuberculosis. So part one of making improvement includes establishing aims and measures and identifying testable changes based on data and solid hypotheses. Now, the second part is about testing the hypotheses. or running mini-experiments, if you'd like to think of it that way. Not the same as, obviously, experimenting on, on patients, but more in line with rapidly testing rational changes in the way we practice in order to achieve safe, demonstrable improvements in care. And it's something we do every day. We just simply like to make it a little bit more formal uh, in terms of the way uh, um, we drive improvement in our organizations. In improvement parlance, The process of hypothesis testing or running these experiments is called the plan-do-study-act cycle, the PDSA cycle. Uh, The process is pretty simple. It implies it includes planning a test, running the test, collecting some data, and then studying the results, and then acting on what we learn, but rapidly running uh, subsequent or sequential small tests. Uh, when we learn to ride a bike, we don't learn to ride the bike by reading a, a review of bike riding and then going out and thinking that we're going to ride the bike perfectly the first time. We always fall down, scrape our knee, uh, maybe get a bloody elbow, get back up on the bike, and keep trying until we get it right. And in many ways, we have to do the same things in terms of driving improvement. It's the action that's the most important thing because we learn from action. And we want to take what we learned today on this call and really drive it into action uh, in the in the days and weeks ahead. Uh, for many folks, this quality improvement language of PDSA, the PDSA cycle, or Plan, Do, Study, Act cycle, doesn't sit very well. It seems too jargony. And if that's the case with the folks you work with, uh, just think of it as a scientific method in action, because that's really what it is. It's a, The scientific method is about testing hypothesis. It's about rapid action-oriented learning. Uh, the last topic that we want to mention is just implementation. When are we ready to stop testing and start implementing? And we are ready to do that when the, when the tests we, that we have run are vetted well enough in our systems uh, that we are ready to stop the formal testing and begin implementing those changes both in the local environment in which we are testing them and other uh, environments in which we are working, going from small-scale testing to broader-scale implementation. Now I'd like to work with Dr. Blumberg to take some of the information we have on tuberculosis and talk about how we go about instituting some of the changes that we believe can lead to better TB uh, treatment for both active TB and for latent tuberculosis infection. Dr. Blumberg made several recommendations in his presentation. From these, we can take a number of steps to institute change. And what we'll do, I think, at the outset is think about some of the constructs that people across the country are using to treat tuberculosis in this very necessary relationship between departments of public health and um, uh, clinical practices. Dr. Blumberg, let's talk about some of those changes, some of the, uh, some of the Uh, methods that folks have used to organize TB care in the community. What changes would you suggest, or what are the smartest organizational constructs that you've seen?
2: Uh, For the treatment of active tuberculosis or latent TB infection, or both?
3: Let's start off with active tuberculosis. Okay.
2: Um, I think, uh, as you point out, there has to be a collaboration um, between the clinician and the public health department. And uh, for people The the first thing is clinicians have to have a high index of suspicion, and there's been a lot of recent articles about delays in diagnosis, because people, you know, are not, clinicians may not be thinking of tuberculosis, the frequency with which they may be seeing a case of TB has probably decreased as the total number of cases um, has decreased in the U.S., and as the disease has become more marginalized in certain patient populations. So the first thing is to have a high index of suspicion. The next thing is if if someone doesn't, once the diagnosis is made, to start an appropriate regimen, that's really key, as I mentioned, starting persons on a four drug regimen. And then the next thing would be is for most clinicians, it's probably unless they have expertise uh, or additional training in the treatment of paci- patients with active TB, they may be better off referring the patient to the health department or to another clinician who has you know considerable Experience. So I think that, that may be the first step is, um, in a lot of cases, referring the patient to someone who's got more expertise. The next step is setting up this collaboration because, um, as was mentioned, directly observed therapy really should be considered in all patients. And the infrastructure to provide directly observed therapy, to meet the patient, for an outreach worker to go out, meet the patient, give them their medications, and, and watch them take them, really only the public health uh, sector, the public health department, really has the infrastructure to provide directly observed therapy. And so that's why if someone, uh, one way is to just refer the patient to the public health department. Alternatively, if the patient's not referred to the public health department, there needs to be a collaboration between the treating clinician and the public health department to, to ensure that the patient's being uh, treat, treated appropriately, followed up appropriately, um, and and for the provision of directly observed therapy. So there's a number of different ways, I think. You know, in big cities, they may have their own clinicians at health departments that treat. In other areas, there may be a partnership where a clinician in the community is treating the patient who has expertise in the treatment of active TB, and they're working hand-in-hand with the public health department, which would be going out and providing the directly observed therapy. So I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all, but it does require uh, collaboration. And and a lot of it is based on the resources and the infrastructure in your local area.
3: Right. One uh, critical uh, recommendation that you have and that uh, the national bodies have is that all TB treatment now for active TB ought to be directly observed therapy or DOT. Right. Uh, And I think that is particularly important. And I think, as you said, most practices uh, don't have the resources and don't have the system designed to do that. Uh, And so that makes the public health department very, you know, particularly important. So I went around and canvassed some of our practices about how they do that, practices in our local community. And I think uh, what everybody realizes is most cases with TB are either going to be, the diagnosis is going to be made by a pulmonologist uh, for active lung disease, uh, or they'll be made in the community and referred to an ID person or to a pulmonary person. And uh, and so a lot of the work that needs to be done is that collaboration between the departments of public health and those private practices. In our community, that seems to work relatively well with the clinicians. Now, we're in Portland, Oregon, so a uh, an urban environment uh, with some great uh, ID practices around the pulmonary practices. My understanding is that most of the TB goes to the infectious disease docs to treat. They prescribe the treatment, and the Department of Public Health then th- uh, provides the DOT and coordinates the care with the ID practice seeing patients about once a month or once every other month just to assure that things are going okay from a medical pers- perspective. And the communication back and forth between the public health department and the ID practice is, is a relatively well worked out one and smooth uh, communication path. Are there other examples that you're aware of? Or maybe, uh, Madge, we can start opening up the lines to. Uh, to those on the call because I'm assuming we have a lot of folks with experience that would be worth sharing on the call.
1: Absolutely. Uh, if, if our numbers tell us anything in terms of uh, registration today, I'm sure people are waiting to ask a lot of questions. I wanted to just throw in one thing before uh, we do t- uh, turn it over to callers. I was curious uh, whether either you, Dr. Kylo, or Dr. Blumberg might have any suggested tools or processes that you're aware of uh, that help clinicians with this kind of uh, how to come up with that high index of suspicion, any tools that can be used by many providers so that they can, you know, know certain triggers, you know, go off uh, in terms of um, uh, targeting for further testing or inquiry. Uh, so I, I'm, not, I'm not sure if either one of you uh, has seen any good methods in that respect, um, but in terms of just the process and making sure that people are really flagged who need to be.
2: I think one, the, the first thing, it may seem kind of simple, but you have to have a high index of suspicion. If you're not, and there's this great poster that says, think TB. I mean, if you're not thinking of TB uh, and someone, um, you know, comes in with uh, respiratory symptoms, cough, um, they may have night sweats, weight loss, et cetera, uh, you're going to miss the diagnosis. So the first thing is you've got to have a high index of suspicion and, um, you know, how to get that into a situation where it, a clinician may be dealing with this very infrequently, you know, I think is challenging. But I think that's that's the first uh, situation, I mean, where where I'm where I am in in inner city Atlanta, it's not that hard cuz we I'm in a hospital that takes care of over 100 patients a year with active TB. So, but we're we're kind of an aberration. Most hospitals don't have, you know, most hospitals have just a a few cases each year. But but I think that the, you know, the important thing is to have a high index of suspicion for people coming in. Um, you know, with symptoms, with respiratory symptoms, et cetera, and also, you know, to be familiar with the epidemiology of TB in your area, is it occurring in, for instance, in our area, it's a little bit different than the national uh, average. We, we have some foreign-born cases, but we have a lot of uh, U.S.-born patients, especially high rates of uh, TB in African-American patients in our community, so part of it is being familiar with the epidemiology of TB uh, in your your local area.
1: Okay. Thank you. Anything you want to add, uh, Dr. Kyler, or should we uh, head into questions?
3: Uh, no. That was great. Let's go ahead and head into questions.
1: Okay. All right. Uh, we're ready. Uh, just a quick reminder uh, that IHI and JAMA plan to study the impact of author in the room on call participants clinical practice using two short surveys. Please don't forget to complete the surveys that will be emailed to you. And we do greatly appreciate your taking part in this important research about the value of the uh, discussion we're having today. And we're all- We are going to turn to questions from our callers. You may have questions of various types about the science, the methodology, uh, a lot of information here today. Uh, Please uh, go after what would be useful to you. Um, We do hope to especially focus on uh, any kinds of models uh, that folks can share with us uh, that help in this process. Please state your name, where you're from, be as concise as possible, and to whom your question is directed. Thank
0: you. At this time, we will conduct a question and answer session. If you have a question, press zero, then the one key on your touchtone phone. This will place you into a queue, and one by one, your lines will be open to ask your questions. Again, that is zero, one, on your touchtone phone. Our first question will come from Randy Goodwin with Middlesex Hospital. Please go ahead.
4: Hi. Uh, I really enjoyed the, uh, the article. Uh, it was, uh, as you said, it was jam-packed with information. Um, one of the uh, issues, I think, uh, with successfully treating people with uh, active tuberculosis is the, all the medications that they need to take uh, up front, at least for the first couple of months. And uh, one of the issues there, uh, I think, could be if we had better technology in our laboratory in terms of getting rapid uh, growth of these organisms and rapid sensitivity testing of these organisms, we may be able to improve uh, compliance and uh, um, tolerability of these regimens if we could minimize. Uh, some of the uh, medications if we knew, for instance, that these uh, organisms were sensitive uh, a lot sooner uh, in the uh, treatment process. And I wonder uh, if you know where that technology stands uh, right now.
2: Okay, this is Henry Blumberg. Thank you for that question. Uh, one piece of technology that is available uh, today uh, is nucleic acid amplification tests. So. Um, these are PCR-like tests that can be done uh, directly on clinical specimens and where they're uh, very helpful is in patients who have AFB smear positive respiratory specimens and so uh, uh, the nucleic acid amplification test can be done on that and can tell you immediately does the patient uh, have TB or not TB because obviously an AFB smear means there's acid fast bacilli there but it doesn't tell you if it's TB or non-tuberculous mycobacteria so uh, by having a nucleic acid amplification test can be helpful up front in telling you this is definitely TB, and that's especially uh, helpful in HIV-infected uh, persons who who may have uh, may be colonized or infected with non-tuberculous uh, mycobacteria. So that that technology is is here, and some hospitals, um, you know, that have high burdens, including my own, have have implica- implemented that, and that's been very helpful. As far as susceptibility testing, as as you point out, TB is a relatively slow-growing organism, and it takes several weeks to get a positive culture, um, and then it takes additional time to uh, get susceptibility testing back. Uh, Right now, the the state-of-the-art is using broth-based media, which uh, hospitals in the U.S., clinical micro labs, should be using, because this microbacteria grow more quickly in broth-based and solid media, and so this can decrease the time to detection um, by you know, 10 to 14 days, for example, compared to solid media. However, that I don't think that gets to exactly the question you're answering, asking which is you know, are there tests that you could do immediately to tell you this is an MDR case or something like that? And I think those uh, exist in research labs. I don't think they're clinically available, but I think in the future we may uh, have. Um, there's several. Uh, tests that are out there that may be able to do what you're asking, tell you up front that this is an MDR test using molecular diagnostic tests. So I, I think that's something that may be coming in the future, but not really there right now in the clinical micro lab today.
1: Okay. Thanks very much uh, for that question, and we'll can, something to look towards uh, in terms of future developments. Next question.
0: Our next question will come from Peggy Vesser with University of Tennessee. Please go ahead.
2: Hi, it's Peggy Vieser, and my question is for Dr. Dr. Bloomberg, and this is regarding latent TB. When you said that serum transaminase level for symptomatic patients needs to be greater than three times elevation, is that the only thing that we're looking at on the SGOT? What about the SGPT or any other elevations? Hi, this is Henry Blumberg. Thank you for your question. Um, what, I, what I hope I said was that that's the cutoff for stopping the medication. So if you, you're treating someone for latent TB infection and they develop symptoms which uh, seem to be consistent uh, with the medication uh, and their AST or ALT uh, go more than three times the upper limit of normal, that is an indication where you should definitely stop the medication. And also for people who are uh, asymptomatic and um, their ALT or AST is, goes up above five times the upper limit of normal, for instance, 250 um, at, at my hospital's lab, uh, that would be an indication to stop the medication. And if you stop it early, then the side, you know the hepatotoxicity is reversible. And and so that's why we really want to catch these people early, uh, so we, we catch them before they develop, develop serious problems. All
0: right. Next question. Our next question will come from Susan Alt with Idaho Primary Care Association. Please go ahead. Hi. This is actually Susan Galetley with Idaho Primary Care Association, and thanks to all our presenters for such an informative session. I have two questions about BCG immunization. One is, in general, would there be a role for BCG in any population groups in the United States? and then specifically for a person with a hematologic malignancy and history of prior adequately treated TB who undergoes a hematologic stem cell transplant, would BCG or any other treatment be indicated post-transplant to prevent reactivation?
1: Okay, Dr. Blumberg, uh, do you want to tackle the whole vaccination uh, question first?
2: Um, Yes, I I think that's an important issue to bring up because uh, as was mentioned, now in the U.S., the majority of cases uh, occur among foreign-born persons. And so if you're targeting testing, one group to target are recent immigrants, people who've been in the U.S. less than five years, and especially those who've been in the U.S. less than one year who are coming from high-prevalence countries. Um, In in the United States, BCG uh, vaccine is not used. Uh, It is used, however, in most other countries around the world. Uh, there's been a lot of controversy about BCG, but I think the bottom line is that um, there's data suggests that it prevents uh, severe disseminated disease in children, and that's why it's used in most places. As far as in adults, um, there's been <laughs> conflicting studies, but I think the bottom line is, is that it hasn't really changed the epidemiology of TB in the world, and if, if BCG was a really good vaccine, we wouldn't be here today talking about the, the big problem of TB. So we, we clearly need a better uh, uh, vaccine, and that's a big area of research to try to develop a uh, truly effective uh, vaccine. Um, so that's kind of as a background uh, against BCG. I, I don't think really in the United States there's any role for the use of, of BCG immunization. However, we deal with a lot of patients who've had received BCG in other countries, and it's recommended. Uh, the the current guidelines recommend that you interpret the the skin test or these other new diagnostic tests. uh, You interpret them regardless of the BCG status. um, But we know there are cross-reactions, and it does make it a little bit more difficult because we know there are cross-reactions between BCG and the tuberculin skin test. Let's hope these newer diagnostic tests may uh, get around that, I think we're going to need some additional information. But that's the hope, because some of these new diagnostic tests have TB-specific antigens that are not found in TB. But to answer the first question, I think there's no role for BCG immunization in the U.S., um, and I think that would also include, uh, in the the second case you you presented, someone with uh, hematologic malignancy who's undergoing chemotherapy. Uh, you'd also be worried about getting disseminated BCG infection, and that rare, that occasionally happens in really immunocompromised patients. So I think right now there's, there's no role of BCG in the U.S. Hopefully in the future um, a, a, an effective uh, TB vaccine will be developed. And there's actually some clinical trials that are starting, so it's, it's kind of an exciting time.
1: All right, most interesting. Okay, let's move on to another caller.
0: Thank you. Our next question will come from Carolyn Leone with Mansfield Ontario Health. Please go ahead. Yes, I have a question regarding international travels whether we should test prior or after they come back, and is it dependent on how long
1: they are overseas? Interesting question. Uh, Dr. Bloomberg?
2: Yes, I think part of that, you know, depends on what part of the world, obviously, the traveler is going to. Uh-huh. Some, obviously, areas that have incredibly high rates of TB and how long they're going to be there. Uh, there, there was actually data that was published uh, from the group in San Francisco looking at this, and there is some increased risk of TB infection in people you know, in travelers who are going to these high uh, TB endemic regions. But I think in someone who's going for a prolonged period of time, it, it's not unreasonable to get a baseline test and then to do another test um, 12 weeks after they return for someone who's going to a highly endemic area you know, for a prolonged period of time, for months or years. Next
1: caller. Our
0: next question will come from Randall Reeves with Denver Public Health. Please go ahead.
5: Yeah, hi. Uh, This is actually uh, Bob Belknap. Uh, Randall Reeves had uh, hoped to be here, but ended up having another commitment, so I'm uh, one of his uh, colleagues. And the the first, uh, uh, really, point I wanted to to, uh, address, uh, not really a question, was, and I appreciate your uh, stress of the importance of using directly observed therapy, Uh, It's something that we've sort of uh, pioneered in Denver uh, years ago. And one of the things we've noticed, though, is that even with sort of stressing and the recommendations that uh, directly observed therapy, universal DOT uh, hasn't been um, sort of widely uh, expanded. And as an example, I'd say in uh, data from CDC in 2001, only about 54% of patients nationwide received uh, universal DOT. One of the things that we changed in Colorado in 1997, the state laws actually uh, changed to require DOT for the treatment of pulmonary TB, and what we found is that uh, it changed uh, practice such that uh, about 60% of patients uh, prior to the regulation got uh, all DOT, and after the regulation it went to 90%, and it really, we saw an outcome uh, improvement, as well, in terms of treatment completion, so again, I just just wanted to comment on on your uh, stressing directly observed therapy, but also that uh, that public health laws may be uh, practical and useful in sort of uh, helping to uh, make uh, DOT more a standard of care. My question is with regards to the newer tests, the, the, the uh, quantiferon and uh, other interferon gamma tests. And for Dr. Blumberg, I was wondering if that's a test that you have either started using or are looking into using uh, anytime soon.
2: Okay. Well, thank you for your uh, comment and question. That's a really interesting strategy using the public health laws as a way to enhance the use of universal directly observed therapy, and it sounds like you have really fantastic outcome data from that. So I I compliment you uh, on what you all have done, and obviously Denver has been a pioneer. The the group in Denver has been a pioneer in uh, treatment of tuberculosis.
5: Um,
2: The other thing I might just add as a comment to that is uh, uh, to do DOT requires a certain amount of resources. It's, it's clearly, I think, cost-effective be, because you prevent the emergence of drug resistance, you make people non-infectious more more rapidly, but uh, I think one concern in the TB control community right now is uh, is a resource one, and we saw resources go down in the 70s, and then in the, in the 80s and early 90s, we had this resurgence of TB in the U.S. because the, the public health infrastructure had fallen apart. And I don't think it's fallen apart right now, but I, I think there's a lot of concerns that the, the funding for TB control is, again, starting to drift down and people are, are starting to ignore the problem of TB again. And I, and I just say there has to be vigilance and there, there needs to be support and really public support for, for, for both TB control and research for TB. Um, the the second part of your uh, comments had to do with the use of uh, uh, the newer diagnostic tests. Um, the the one that's FDA approved now in the U.S. is the QuantiFERON test. There was a first generation QuantiFERON TB. That that's going to be no longer available since a second generation uh, test called QuantiFERON uh, Gold has been developed. Um, I think there's a lot of hope in circles that you know this in the future we'll be able to move to other diagnostic tests um, for TB. I don't think we're quite there yet. I think one thing that, one, is some of the logistic issues with doing these tests are a little bit challenging. There's there's also a third-generation test that is being developed now that I think is going to help out with some of the logistic issues. And also we need further studies to determine whether these new interferon uh, gamma tests are predictive of those who have high risk of progression to active TB, like we know for a TST. And we also need more information on the use of these tests in subgroups, such as children and HIV-positive patients, where we don't have a lot of data. Um, so I think we're, we're kind of moving forward, but, um, you know, I think this is kind of a, a process that is evolving. And then the other thing is I think that the guidelines that come out uh, from CDC will be very helpful in providing guidance on how best to use these these new tests. And there's guidelines out right now on the first-generation test, which is going to go away, and CDC is currently working on guidelines for the second-generation test. So I think when those come out in the coming months, those will provide some very useful data on, on how to use these tests and what populations to use them, these newer diagnostic tests for uh, latent TB infection.
1: Thank you very much. Uh, this is Madge Kaplan. I'm going to throw in a question here. Maybe uh, Dr. Kylo and or Dr. Blumberg might take it up. Given the uh, in concerns about the rise of re- resistance strains, if people do not complete their medication and go through the entire process, are there any tools or processes uh, that you've witnessed that can be very effective to help people complete the entire uh, process, recognizing, of course, that we've been talking about it often coming under uh, the auspices of a public health department? Uh, but that seems to be a very, very big issue, uh, be- people going through the entire regimen.
3: Well Well, is uh, Chuck, and I think that's a really critical um, uh, question. And if we have Bob from the Denver Department of Public Health on the line still, or if we can get him back on the line, I think their input would be particularly important in this regard because they really have forged a lot of this work nationally in terms of how do we most effectively use DOT. And one of the reasons is Dr. Blumberg has said the critical reason to interact with the public health department is because they have tracking mechanisms and they have resources to track folks down that the average practice is not going to have. And so in that, in your question, really, I think, strongly suggests why anybody with active TB has got to be followed by a Department of Public Health. Um, and uh, maybe they could give us some uh, some insights in how they've configured their DOT program to make it as effective as possible so that people aren't lost to follow-up.
1: Okay. Uh, Dr. Blumberg, any thoughts on that? And I, do, I don't know if Bob from Denver is still there.
5: <laughs> Here, I don't know if am I still acting? Live yes, we can hear you go right ahead okay dr. well, Dr. Bomberg, if you had comments first
2: um, I was just going to say, you know i think the the main thing to try to prevent resistance is to you know to give directly observed therapy. There's a lot of data that that works you know the the amount of uh multi drug resistant t b in the u s has come down since uh this has been uh, widely implemented, and I think you know New York City is the best example uh, of really how the tide has been turned in New York, where there was a tremendous amount of MDR TB. And after, you know, rebuilding the public health infrastructure and enhanced uh, directly observed therapy, that this is you know the um, amount of MDR uh, decreased you know, you know, dramatically in New York C- City. The other thing, the only other comment I would make is that I think when you're treating somebody with TB, it has to be done in a clinical and social framework based on the patient's circumstances you know many patients with tb are indigent they may have certain um other needs they may be homeless so i think looking at the patient as a whole and trying to deal with their other uh issues um, while you're treating their tb as well can help i think enhance uh adherence to the, to treatment
5: okay uh go ahead bob yeah so um w- You know, one of the things that uh, I think uh, Dr. Bumberg touched on that we've really tried to uh, center our practice around is is patient-focused care and and really flexible care in providing the directly observed therapy. And and what that means is expanded uh, clinic hours uh, to allow people who are in the community working uh, and otherwise either come in before or after uh their work hours to receive their DOT and then we've also have uh outreach workers who are um, specially trained, but are, are not uh, physicians or RNs uh, who deliver medications either to a person's home or, or even to their work uh, if that's uh, more convenient for them. And we, we found by doing that that we've had, uh, we've had a lot more, exce- uh, lot more success. You know, additionally, sort of having a, a culturally sensitive environment, uh, most of our patients are foreign-born and uh, many of them are Spanish-speaking only, and so our clinic staff and outreach workers are all—not uh, uh, all—all the outreach workers and many of the clinic staff, I'd say, are, are bilingual. Um, and again, the what uh, I think happened with the institution of the the public health law in '97, uh, that—and again, it requires DOT for pulmonary tuberculosis, and and for extrapulmonary, it's it's encouraged. Uh, but what it uh, what it really did was shift so that uh, private providers i'd say more often now would refer f- refer folks to the public health because we do have the structure uh, to provide. Uh, directly observed therapy uh, for patients a lot uh, a lot easier than than a, than a private provider, and so it just it sort of standardized the care of tuberculosis patients and again, part of the reason for doing it is that while there are uh, certain factors uh, including uh, homelessness and alcoholism that have been associated with noncompliance. Uh, there are also many studies showing that uh, that we're all very poor predictors of of patient noncompliance at the onset of therapy, and also a number of studies showing that uh, if you start folks on DOT as opposed to self-administered therapy up front, uh, they have better outcomes. So that's sort of how how you know mainly how we structured our uh, our program and and how we've, we and why we feel we've had success with it.
1: Well, thank you very much. Uh, That real world experience uh, contributes a great deal uh, to our discussion today. So, really, really appreciate your in there and still being on the line. Well, believe it or not, that's actually all the time we have for questions. However, there will be a web-based discussion group available on IHI's website for participants who'd like to continue this conversation with one another, and we do hope you will. You will find a link to this discussion group right on the homepage of IHI.org. Look under Community, then Discussion Groups. In order to view or participate in the discussion group, you do have to register with IHI.org But it's free, and it's very simple to do so. And we're coming to the end of uh, our series of hour-long discussions we call Author in the Room. Thanks very much to Dr. Henry Blumberg and Dr. Chuck Kylo, uh, both of you, for your knowledge and guidance today. And I'd like to give each of you an opportunity to make some brief uh, closing remarks. Why don't we start with you, Dr. Blumberg?
2: Okay. Thanks very much. I just kind of wanted to go over the, the conclusions I mentioned before. Uh, first of all, as we've been discussing, tuberculosis is a, is a serious public health uh, problem, especially globally, but also in certain uh, areas in the United States. The responsibility for prescribing an appropriate uh, treatment regimen and assuring that the treatment is completed is assigned, to, is assigned to the public health program or the treating physician, not the patient. As we've been discussing, directly observed therapy is recommended for all patients being treated for active TB, and this will necessitate the need for greater collaboration between the treating physician and the public health department, and a number of strategies were discussed today on, on how to do that. Initial therapy for newly, for newly diagnosed patients with active TB consists of a four-drug regimen, including isoniazid, rifampin, pyrazinamide, and ethambutol. Testing for latent TB infection should be targeted at those who are at increased risk of progression to active TB. Despite its limitations, the tuberculin skin test remains the most commonly used test for the diagnosis of latent TB infection. Newer diagnostic tests for latent TB infection are on the horizon, and one is now FDA approved. Active tuberculosis should be excluded before beginning treatment for latent TB infection. And finally, nine months of isoniazid is the preferred therapy for the treatment of latent TB infection.
1: All right. Thank you. Lots of really valuable information. Uh, Dr. Kylo, some uh,
3: parting remarks. Well, Madge, the important thing, as you know, and as Dr. Blumberg has alluded to, is that is that if we're going to make improvement, we have to make changes in the way we practice. And this call, I think, has been a great example of the, the mix that we have in healthcare care between the science and the tools and treatments that we have available and the system issues which deliver that care. And I think that it is most intriguing for us, because we're science-based people, to think about new treatments and new diagnostic capabilities. But the Denver experience really expresses that even when we think about that, our performance still tends to be less than optimal, and that it is the system design issues which allow us to go from a 60% DOT rate that they had in Denver beforehand to a 90% after the changes they made. I think those are the issues that we have to think about and think about how to take the knowledge that Dr. Blumberg and colleagues have so eloquently put into this review article and create systems to assure that that knowledge is reliably put into place using things like legislative techniques like they use in Colorado, um, relations between uh, infectious disease practices and public health departments and other mechanism, system mechanisms such as that. So I would encourage everybody to think about that delicate balance and to really work hard on the system issues of systematizing excellent, diabetes, or excellent uh, tuberculosis care.
1: All right. Thank you very much. And we do hope people will take advantage of the web-based discussions to offer up more examples of how some of these system changes may be in place uh, where you're located and practicing, uh, particularly on this collaboration issue between public health and private practice. You all. This is a monthly series that takes place the third Wednesday of every month from two to three p.m. Eastern time. Our next discussion takes place on July 20th, and the topic will be the article, Combined Tetanus, Diphtheria, and Five-Component Pertussis Vaccine for Use in Adolescents and Adults. The article, information about the author, and how to register for the July 20th call are now available on both the IHI and JAMA websites. Author in the Room is an interactive conference call designed to accelerate changes that can improve clinical practice. The project is a collaboration between the Journal of the American Medical Association and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, generously funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. As a reminder, IHI and JAMA plan to study how and whether Author in the Room participants are able to make use of clinical improvements suggested by our experts. Today's discussion of best practices for the diagnosis and treatment of tuberculosis, suggest some changes in practice clinicians can test on a small scale. We are asking that all participants complete two short surveys that will be emailed to you immediately after this call and three months from now, and we thank all who've joined us today for taking the time to complete the surveys. Again, thanks to Dr. Kylo, Dr. Blumberg, thanks to all of you for being part of Author in the Room. I'm Madge Kaplan of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, good day.